And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Father in heaven, we need your help. We need the Spirit's help to understand your word, uh, to be taught by him, and to know how to respond. Uh, It is your Spirit who works in our heads uh, to sharpen and clarify our thinking. It's your Spirit who works in our hearts to convict us of sin, to draw us to your Son, Jesus, and to work change in our lives. And it's your Spirit who works through our hands Uh, as he uh, grows us in understanding the gospel of your son, to live this out. As we pray that you would do that today, that you would be working in our heads, uh, growing and transforming our hearts, and uh, helping us to love and to serve each other through this word today. Father, I pray also for your spirit's help for myself, to be able to speak from this passage clearly as I ought, And for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. I want you to meet Kenneth and Jonathan. These guys met 40 years ago, and every other summer they've been getting together for a fishing trip on the Gold Coast. Some of you are smirking, because actually it's Ben and I. Uh, This is uh, the photo that Ben uh, took two years ago at the Allstone Conference. So how did I get that old photo of us? The Face App app on our phones. Now, if you didn't know, the Face App app, it's actually been around for a while, but it got itself back into the news again last week uh, because it released a filter to make people look like much older versions of themselves. 
it's a bit of fun, but beware, the app owns the photos under its terms and conditions and can use them however you, they want. So I deleted the app. Now, as the craze swept across social media, I noticed one particular comment on these photos that kept coming up again and again from all these different photos from different people. And it was this comment, wow, you look like your dad. Now, it's interesting, I, I didn't see any women put up these photos of their old <laughs> selves. Mystery of mysteries, that is. Uh, but as I was looking at that photo as well, I, I realized that, wow, I kind of look like my dad. Now, you don't need an aging app to tell you that. I mean, w when a newborn baby comes into this world, what's the first thing we do? Right, after we check that the parents are okay and they, they're getting enough sleep and you know, everything's fine, we look at the baby and we try to work out if baby looks like mommy or daddy. Right? Children tend to look like their parents. Now, in a very similar way, God's children look like their father in heaven. Not in a physical way, of course, but there is something about them that shows that their father is God in heaven. God's children have a particular appearance and they have things that mark them out as genuine children of God. Now, first, children, we want to see in this passage uh, some of these markers. And first, John says uh, that one of the markers of being a child of God is that children of God abide in Jesus. You see that in chapter 2, verse 28. So keep the passage open in front of you. We'll be uh, plot, um, jumping around it a little bit. Hopefully it makes sense by the end of it. But have a look at chapter 2, verse 28, and see how John addresses his readers. Little children. He's picking up the language that he used earlier in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Uh, he's addressing this church, which is lacking assurance and, and a little less mature in their faith. And so he tells them, little children, abide in him. Now, to abide in Jesus means to stick with him, to stay with and in Jesus, remain united to Jesus. They trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they are to stay in Jesus and with Jesus. Now, the reason why he's told, telling them to do that is spelled out very quickly in the second half of verse 28. You'll actually notice that throughout this passage, when he commands something to do, the reason for it is usually in the same sentence, either at the end or before. So the reason they are to abide in Jesus, spelled out in the second half of verse 28, so that when Jesus appears... That is, when he returns in the second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is going to return one day to judge the world, and those who trust in Jesus and have stayed trusting Jesus, they can have confidence to stand before the judge of the world. So what does this confident abiding in him look like? Now, the answer is, I think, dotted throughout this passage. Uh, first, you actually see in verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29, abiding in Jesus looks like practicing righteousness. Why? First part of verse 29, because we know that Jesus is righteous. To be righteous is essentially to have always done what is right in God's sight, not just in deed, but also in thought and in love and in affection, what your head and your heart and your hands have thought and desired and done have always been right. 
To be righteous is to have always done right in these areas. Someone who abides in Jesus, someone who sticks with Jesus, is someone who is loving God with all their heads, their hearts, and their hands. They are practicing righteousness. Now, why the word practice there? You notice that actually, along with the word righteous, the word practice appears seven times. It's the most repeated word in this section. To practice is to rehearse something, right? To do it over and over again. Repetition on the way to perfection. You've heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. Now, one of my favorite musicians of all time is Australian guitarist Tommy Emmanuel. I've got all of his CDs, I've got a few of his DVDs and his concert videos, uh, and I've seen him in person three times. Uh, he is an absolute whiz on the guitar. Uh, if you haven't heard him, Google him later, ask me for recommendations. But one of the, the, the things that Tommy always says, one thing I noticed that at the end of every single concert, he talks about his passion for playing, he talks about his passion for making people happy, and then he always says, I work really hard at playing this guitar, and I keep working hard because, hey, I'm still trying to get good at this. <laughs> I hear that. I look over at my poor guitar sitting in the corner of my room, gathering dust because I haven't played it in years, and I feel sorry for it. It'll never be played. Like, I, I grieve that I will never play like Tommy Emmanuel because I just don't have the time to practice. Practice makes perfect. And the more you practice, the better you get at something. But, but, there's a slight difference. Here when John talks about practicing righteousness, there's a slight difference. When we practice our musical instruments or our sports, we're seeking perfection. God's children are already perfect in his sight. And so we practice what we already are. You actually see that in the middle of chapter 3, verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You notice that he doesn't say whoever practices righteousness will one day get there or will become righteous. No, he says you are already righteous just as Jesus is. Just as Jesus is righteous, so you practice. Right. That line also tells us that of what righteousness looks like. It looks like Jesus. So to abide in Jesus, to keep practicing righteousness, is to keep working in our lives to look like Jesus. A similar idea comes up in verse 3. To abide in Jesus also looks like purifying yourself. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. To make pure is to get rid of any impurity, to cut out sin in our lives. And it's a long and hard work of repentance, of recognizing that we sin, recognizing when we sin, confessing it, like John tells us to do in chapter 1, verse 9, and then turning to Jesus. We get rid of sin because we are united to Jesus and he is pure. So as God's children, we, we do these things. And as we do these things, we see the love the Father has given us. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Wow. God's children know and delight in God's love for them. 
One, one other marker of a child of God is that they love their brothers and sisters. You see that in chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, we should love one another. And an example of hate and murder is Cain. Cain who murdered his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He's the bad example. And John is comparing the hatred of someone to murdering of the murder of, uh, of Abel by Cain. John will also go on to expand a little bit more later what love will look like. So we won't tease that out too much today. So the markers of the children of God. They abide in Jesus, they practice righteousness, they purify themselves, they see the love the Father has for them, and they love their brothers and sisters in church. That's quite a picture, isn't it? It's, it's a glorious picture of what it means to be a child of God. So what I want you to do now is I want you to turn to the person next to you, right? to the person to your right, and then to the person to your left, and have a quick look at them. Now, I want you to think, if you spent any amount of time with this person, how long would it take for you to realize that they were not glorified? Not long. 10 seconds? 30 seconds? You know, this picture here that John paints of what it looks like to be a child of God, it's really impressive. But to be honest, when we look around... We don't quite see that, do we? See, there's a problem here. The markers of being a child of God are glorious, but in reality, they're not obvious. And so when John, and John even says that in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. He's saying, look, we are God's children, yet at the same time, it can be very hard to see that on the outside. It's not crystal clear. As we probably know from personal experience, we don't often look that impressive. John has said that a, a child of God is this glorious picture, someone who has let go of their selfish desires, who is other person-centered, someone who has calmed their lust, uh, is someone who is an expansively generous person with their time and their money, who is loving and kind and patient with their stubborn and rebellious three-year-old daughter. <clears throat> And John says that in the rest of chapter 3, verse 2, that in the future when Jesus returns, that will be made clear. We will be like Jesus, but for now, it's not yet appeared. See, for now, it can be hard to tell who is a genuine child and who is not. Now, it's not just a problem that we don't look impressive. The other problem is that false teachers look impressive. That is a recipe for disaster because Christians who look unimpressive right now and false teachers who look very impressive, that makes Christians easy prey to falsehood. See, if Christians actually looked like this, if, if you were a part of a church where people bent over backwards to love and to serve each other, where there were passionate prayers and accountability where there was this profound spirit of generosity with time and finances, if you looked around and you were hanging with people and you saw bastions of godliness, then of course you would want to stay with them and false teaching would never look attractive. And on the flip side, if false teachers looked like lecherous old men hiding in the shadows, you would never want to go after them. But here's the very common problem. False teachers often look very impressive. 
couple of weeks ago, I was at Salt Camp. On the final day of camp, one of the rules that we always do is that you've got to pack up your dorm room uh, your, uh, and all the things and clean up. Now, in my room, I had a TV, so I thought I'd switch on the TV, maybe watch some news while I was packing up. Now, it was a Sunday morning, and on the TV came a well-known preacher from Singapore. And I would say, and I'm not alone, that he is a false teacher. He is pastor of one of the biggest churches there. Now, I notice in, in the 15 minutes of listening to him, what I've noticed in all his writings and other bits of teaching, he was really impressive. He was well-dressed. He was knowledgeable. He was a very good speaker. I found it very easy to listen to him. He often used himself as a sermon illustration about how much faith he had and how God had blessed him and the church. And he made, here's the kicker, he made very big promises. He promised that if you had an, word for word, if you had enough faith, if you truly believed, then the devil would never harm you. Sin would not have total power in your life. And that you would, this is word for word, that you would live such a blessed life that your non-Christian friends would be jealous and would want to know God because of how richly you've been blessed. You see, if he had offered anything less, you would never go for it. If he had offered his false teaching for what it truly was, if he came out with a platter and said, I offer you false teaching, no one would go for it. But because he was so impressive, he was so persuasive. But he along with all false teachers, are deceivers. A few weeks ago when we started this sermon series, uh, I mentioned in the first sermon that one of the problems in this church that John is writing to is that a group of people had up and left the church. They had strayed after false teaching. Now, over the past few weeks, Ben and I have been reading some very helpful commentaries and articles on the exact nature of this false teaching. Now, I've become convinced that the primary false teaching that John is addressing is Judaizers, people who were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and were actually returning to the Jewish laws. And in this letter, John speaks about these false teachers with overlapping categories. He calls them antichrists, darkness, the world, and sinners. All of these categories overlap uh, with these false teachers. They include other things, but they also overlap with these false teachers. So in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, I think that means both the world out there, the non-Christian world, but also these Jewish false teachers who left. They do not know us and do not know the apostles because they do not know God. Now, I think this idea that the false teachers are the world and sinners is a helpful lens by which to read this book because it helps us uh, make sense of some tricky verses. So pay attention. This is a little bit technical, but stick with me. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 8 in your Bibles. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, John said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Do you know any Christian who says, I have no sin? I have come to the point of Christian perfection. 
No one says that. So who would? And I think the answer is these Jewish lawkeepers. You see, the original definition of sinner wasn't just someone who was sorry. The original definition of a sinner was someone who didn't keep God's law. And so, a good Jew would never view themselves as a sinner. And so that's why when Paul says in Romans three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is such a powerful and shocking statement to his Jewish readers. A good Jew keeping the law as best they could would never have called themselves a sinner. So it's likely that these impressive false teachers who were going back to Judaism were telling this church, "We have no sin. We're not sinners anymore because we're law keepers." And so, back in、uh, chapter one, verse eight, John says they are deceiving themselves. So you you say you have no sin, and you're not a believer. Now come back into our passage and have a look at this translation of chapter three, verse six. This is a literal translation of chapter three, verse six. All abiding in Him do not sin. All those sinning have not seen Him nor known Him. Now what do you do with that? Now, chapter one, verse eight said, "If you say you have no sin, you don't know God." Literally, John three verse one、uh, John three six says, "If you sin, you do not know God." So our translators have kind of inserted the word "keeps on" to kind of try and make sense of this to, to some, make some sort of differentiation. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So. A common interpretation to kind of harmonise what's going on here is that this verse is saying that Christians Christians occasionally fall into sin, but not habitually. But that begs the question: How occasional is occasional?、So、the biggest problem in my life is not occasional sin. And I've spoken with enough of you to know that your sins and my own sins are more habitual than we're comfortable with. No one here is comfortable with how often they sin. And so, when we read John, it almost sounds like he's smacking us on the head, you know, like a good Asian dad. <laughs> so, what do we do with this verse? I think, in context, the verse is not directed to Christians, but is directed at the false teachers. Here's why: Have a look at John,、uh, one John three verse four.、Uh, John says there that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, John has already said that children of God practice righteousness. He's not now saying that children of God practice both righteousness and sin, right? You're not trying to perfect yourself in both of these things. So take a look at the end of verse 29, chapter two, verse 29. If you practice righteousness, it shows that you have been born of God. So here's a clear contrast. Chapter two, verse 29. Children of God. Practice righteousness because they have been born of God. Now jump to chapter three, verse eight. Chapter three, verse eight. You notice there, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
John is not saying that we are both children of God and children of the devil. Doesn't work like that. Children of God practice righteousness. Children of the devil practice sin. First point. Second point. I think John is using the word sin in a very particular way. When you go back to the start of the letter, he mentions sin in general terms, but then as the letter progresses, there are a number of sins highlighted which characterize those who left the church. Remember, there was a group of people in this church who had left, become false teachers, and they were sinning now in a very particular way. They did not obey the command to love the brothers. They did not continue in the apostles' teaching. And they claimed a relationship with the Father, but they denied the Son. So remember in chapter 2, verse 19, he said that their departure proved who they really belonged to. He said if they were of us, if they were like us, they would have stayed with us. But because they're gone, it shows that they were never one of us. Now, I think John speaks of sin in a specific way. A child of the devil does what these false teachers do. They leave the church, they abandon the apostles' teaching, and they deny Jesus is the Son of God. And so I think chapter 3, verse 6, is speaking about sin in a very specific way. Not in general ways, and the no one there refers to the false teachers. Now, this interpretation of sin, this particular interpretation of sin, isn't completely new. In John's Gospel, I'm just going to list these out, come back, uh, after, uh, speak to me afterwards if you like the references, uh, but let me just uh, list these out. In Go- John's Gospel, John 15 verse 22, sin there has a very specific edge. Sin uh, there refers to specifically rejecting Jesus and rejecting the Father. In John 16 verse 8, sin is not believing in Jesus. So those uses of the word sin there are very particular and focused. On the flip side, obedience, for instance, can also have very specific meaning. So in John 16, verse 28, obedience is about believing that God has sent Jesus. Now, that's not what all obedience means, but in context, that's what it means there. So even here in this letter, I think John is using the same technique. He's differentiating sins. If you actually look at chapter 5, verse 16, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, have a look at that with me. You notice even there, John differentiates between sins that lead to death and sins that don't. So he says in chapter 5, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will forgive him to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. So even there, sin has a particular meaning. And so this troubling verse, chapter 3, verse 6, I think John is doing the same thing. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that these false teachers sin because they do not abide in Jesus, and they sin because they have not seen or known him. Now that's a very longish explanation for what I think is a simple point in this passage. Children of God abide in Jesus, they practice righteousness, they purify themselves, they love one another because they have been born of God. But a child of the devil rejects Jesus, they practice sin, they do not know God and they do not love the brothers. And in the end, it's going to be bad news for children of the devil. 
chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus appeared to take away sins, but these false teachers had rejected Jesus and were practicing sin. And at the end of chapter 3, verse 8, John reminds us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil and anyone who follows him in their false teaching are going to be destroyed. Now John writes this part of this letter to warn Christians, do not be deceived. It says right very clearly there in chapter 3, verse 7, do not be deceived. The Christians around you might look, not look impressive. The false teachers might look very impressive, but do not be deceived. Don't judge a book by its cover. What they believe and how they live is evidence that they are children of the devil and they will be wiped away soon enough. So what do we do with this? Uh, When we're applying the Bible, what we're trying to do is we're trying to work out and try to understand what the original situation was in the letter or in in the book and how, that, and how our present situation might parallel that's what's going on. Now, I think this passage, in this passage, we, we have a very specific situation that we might not find uh, any specific correlation to in our Christian world today. I don't think we find ourselves with a group of people who have left our church, gone to Judaism, claimed to be without sin, and look impressive, so impressive that it's tempting Christians to follow after them. But we do live in a world where false teachers do look impressive and who do lure Christians away from the true gospel. So John's imperative in chapter 3, verse 7, let no one deceive you, is a strong warning for us today. I think some of us here need today need to walk away to, and grow our discernment. We need to grow in not only knowing the Bible and the gospel with more clarity, but we also need to grow in understanding what is unhelpful and false so that we can see the difference. We can smell the rat. Now, let me give three tips on how to do this. First, we need to be very careful what you read on the internet. The internet is a wonderful tool, the world's information on your smartphone. But the internet can be tricky because there's no filter on the internet to tell you what is true and what is false. So here's the tip. Just because it's online and just because you Googled it and found it via Google doesn't mean it's helpful or true. Yes, there are good sites and good teaching that you can find, but there's also a lot of unhelpful and false teaching online. And if you're not already discerning enough, then the internet can be a hidden trap waiting to suck you in. Two, so if the internet isn't helpful, what is? Well, John has already said in this letter that Christians have the Holy Spirit. So pray, ask for the Spirit's help to grow in knowing Jesus and the gospel better. Ask for wisdom to know how to navigate through. You know, when we were going through the gospel of Mark, uh, last term. Uh, a number of people, and, and we were noticing all the sandwiches that Mark has kind of put structurally into the gospel. Uh, a few people came up to me afterwards and they said, I would never have seen that. Now I want to respond, never is a very long time. 
Gary Miller uh, is the principal of Queensland Theological College, a good friend of mine. He did his PhD thesis in the book of Deuteronomy, which means he spent three years at Oxford reading the book of Deuteronomy over and over again and playing lots of soccer. Now, he told me that after three years of study, full-time intense study, as he stood before his printer and the pages were being printed out of his PhD thesis, he came to a bit of a slow and sad realization that any Christian with enough time and with the help of the Holy Spirit would have come to the same conclusions as his PhD. Now, I think that's true of all of us. The Holy Spirit is powerful to help us understand and see the world, see the word. Now, we might, we might need some help and, and some tools on how to read the Bible, but in the Holy Spirit's hands, these tools can be very powerful for us personally. And so if you're reading your Bible, prayerfully ask for the Spirit's help. Now, this doesn't mean that it's just all on your shoulders and that you alone are the sole interpreter of the Bible. Uh, and so our third and final point in chapter 2, verse 29, John encourages us to use everyone around us. Uh, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been warned of me. How can you be sure of this? If you're a part of a church community, practicing these things together. So the third tip to grow in our discernment is to not neglect the community. The Spirit works in you individually, and the Spirit works within the community to help us grow together. See, the more you are in community, studying the Word and growing together, the more you are protected from the lure and the temptation of false teaching. Or to put it negatively, the more you go solo as a Christian, the more likely you will end up being picked off. We need each other. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that God has gifted his church with teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we build each other up to maturity. Now, a sign of maturity in Ephesians 4 is that we will no longer be tossed to and fro like a little boat on the waves of false teaching. Do not neglect your church community to help you grow. So do not be deceived, grow in your discernment. Last encouragement, let's end on a positive note. John is encouraging us to abide in Jesus, stick with Jesus, and it's as simple as knowing and trusting the gospel and living for him. You're not expected to be perfect, and he is not demanding perfection. You're already perfect in his sight. You are perfect because trusting Jesus means that your sins are taken away and you are clothed in the perfection of his son. And so when John tells us practice righteousness, he's telling us that God wants us to live out what we are already in his eyes. The father loves you. He delights in you. You are his child. And he delights when his child tries to please him. Last night after dinner, my family were watching some old videos uh, of the family on, on my phone. We found this one video of Ellie, who was uh, nearly one, or just under one, and she was beginning to learn how to walk. 
when a, to- when a baby learns how to walk, the first thing they do is they usually pull themselves up on something like the couch, and they do this thing called scooting, where they just kind of scoot along the couch using the couch as kind of a, a, as balance. Uh, and then she turned around in this video. She smiled, and Jaden's there going, come, come. And she took one step and two steps, and then she fell over. Now, do you think in that moment, as we were watching that, or as I was videoing it, and we see Ellie stumble over, do you think in that moment that me, as her father, looked at Steph and went, that's you. My family walks. You don't stumble. No. Do you think we got mad at Ellie because she fell over? No. We love her. And in a deeper and richer and bigger way, God loves us and delights in us. And so when we stumble, which we will, confess your sin, turn back to Jesus, and keep living as his child to the delight of your Father in heaven. Let me pray. Father, your servant John has written this word to give us assurance of our faith, to give us confidence that you are our Father and we are your child. And so we pray you'd help us to grow in this confidence, to live joyfully to please you, to know that there is false teaching in this world. And so we pray that you will harden our heads, grow our heads so that we might, be, we might defend ourselves against this. Help us to encourage each other in this task. Help us to do this with great love as well, sharing our lives together. Father, help us then to live for you, to know that you delight in us. We pray that you'll help us to re-examine these things, maybe even re-examine our lives, and to live joyfully in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.